Yes, good people, it's Francis here from Let's Do Humans podcast. This is just a quick announcement, just to encourage everybody here that's listening to our podcast right now, just to ensure that you subscribe and you follow us on all of the various platforms out there that produce podcasts, that's subscribing to us on YouTube, following us on iTunes and Spotify. I mean, follow us, make sure that you share our content and continue your support, that'll be greatly appreciated. That's Let's Do Humans, L-E-T-S-D-O-H-U-M-A-N-S, Let's Do Humans, one word. Appreciate all of your support. Stay blessed, good people. It's right. amazing to have an um, FBI agent on, actually, or former <laughs> FBI agent on, because I mean I don't know how he is in the states, but here in here in the UK, we, we're always fascinated by American movies. That's that's a major major thing, especially crime and thrillers. And FBI and CIA are always at the forefront of majority of these movies. Yeah, so great. when I came across your content, I was super excited. I was like, wow, someone who I kind of recognize and relate to in terms of like you know both of us being of um, African descent or African or you being African American. And I just thought it would be amazing to have you on here to tell a bit of your story and just, you know, engage with you and share some of the stuff that, you know, you've been involved in as, as an agent. Um, first and foremost, you want to introduce yourself to the audience so that they know who you are. Yeah, so I'm Jerry Williams and I'm a retired FBI agent and now an author and a podcaster. And I like to say that I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission to show the public who the FBI is and what the FBI does through my books and my blog and my podcast case reviews with former colleagues. So um, yeah, I think I'm most known because of the podcast. I've been podcasting for about five and a half years and my podcast is called FBI Retired Case File Review. And on it, I I interview exclusively retired FBI agents about some of the FBI's biggest cases and cases that you might never have heard about. Yeah, amazing. That's how I came across your work, actually, as well. And a few friends of mine sent me, um, I think it was a video clip of you on another channel where you were reviewing um, crimes and whether they were accurate or not, and in particular crimes in in relations to fraud, which we're going to get into. So I was like super intrigued by that because most of the time when we watch movies, we either tend to think it's the gospel or it looks completely fake. So to have someone who's actively been in that environment review it kind of gave us a different side to it. But in relations to becoming an FBI agent, how does that come about? Is that something that you did? Did you set out to become an FBI agent, or is it something that you just became or dragged into? Yeah, no, not at all. I was a psychology major in college or at the university, as you guys like to say. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And um, when I got out, uh, my first professional job was as a juvenile probation officer. So I worked with young kids in the city um, trying to get them to, you know, get their lives together. I actually was working with youth that had already been through the court system and had been sent away to group homes and reform, you know, schools and things like that, trying to, you know, get them rehabilitated in some way so they can come back to the community. And so my job was to travel out to these facilities all over 
Virginia, sometimes with their parents and families, if they couldn't you know, get transportation, then I would take them. And then once they're out of that facility, after they've done their quote unquote time, mm -hmm. then um, I would work with them in the community. And I did that job for a little over three years and I was burning out. You know, you work with youth, so yeah. you know, you know, it's an emotionally, it's emotionally rewarding and mm. emotionally draining at the same time. And so I, I started looking around and I just came across this ad that the FBI was looking for women and minorities. Mm. And I was like, whoa, I never even thought about yeah. being an FBI agent. I mean, to me, when you think about FBI agents, even now, when you think about an FBI agent, you think about a white male in a dark suit. Yeah. You know, it just wasn't Yeah, it just wasn't me, but uh, I called the number on the ad. Hmm. And what were they looking for in terms of like, apart from just looking for the demographic side of things, um, what were some of the skill sets that are after that you possessed? Uh, well, the basic qualifications are that you have to be between 23 and you can't be older than 37. You can't have reached your 37th birthday. Okay. You also need to have a college degree um, to be competitive. Sometimes it means, you know, having more than just the college degree, a master's, et cetera. But they're also looking for people who have work experience. It's, you know, sometimes it's surprising to people to learn that becoming an agent is really a second career opportunity. Most of the agents have worked someplace for many years before they join the FBI. And that's why the average agent, the age of the average agent coming on board is 30, 30 years old. So they've worked someplace else, which allows the Bureau to look at what they've done in the past in order to predict whether or not they can do the agent job. And um, yeah, so that's the basic skills. But I mean, the bottom line is they're looking for people who are leaders. They're looking for people who can come into a situation, not know what's going on and be able to, to start drilling down and trying to figure out what's happening. Yeah. I mean, that's the basic skill sets of this job. Yeah, it shows the importance of having life skill sets in in regards to like you know finding <laughs> yeah. yourself in certain positions. Um, so when you got into the um to FBI, were in there? So were there many African Americans in there at all? No, not not really. I was the twenty third black female, and at the time when I came in, and I came in a while ago, yeah. nineteen eighty two, but I was the twenty third black female, and and that was out of about nine thousand agents. Um, so we made up about 0.5%. And now there's about 13, 14,000 agents, but black women still make up around 1% of the agent rank. So, you know, it's still, it's yeah. still not a lot of black females. And, and as far as, uh, African-American or, or black agents altogether, it is less than 5%. It's four point something percent. So, um, you know, even on TV shows and in movies, you really see a diver a diverse uh, mm -hmm. look at 
at the agents. You know, a lot yeah. of times on the TV shows, there's you know African American and Asian and Hispanic agent agents running around all the time. Yeah. But unfortunately, for whatever reason, uh, they're still pretty low as far as diversity in the FBI. I think it's a major problem. Yeah. I think it's a major problem for all law for all law enforcement agencies because they really should reflect the community for which they serve and the fact that you know the bureau is still i think the number i think the last time i looked it was like 83 percent white white males white females yeah uh you know that's um i think that's an, an issue that the bureau is trying to address but for some reason uh, those yeah. numbers don't seem to be increasing. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting to hear because when whenever you watch movies, there seems to be a real great mixture. So you tend to think that they, you know, the, the demographics is quite mixed. Um, but then to hear that in reality isn't so. So movie representation and real life representation is completely different at times. But then it's great to have people like yourself at the forefront doing the type of work you do, which enables people to see that, okay, there are positions for or, you know, someone who potentially looks like me in, in such a position. Because when I think of, you know, the FBI, CIA, we've got MI5 and MI6 here, I never think I could possibly, or I could have possibly when I was younger, gone and, you know, gone into these these fields or these these sectors of work because I just never saw that representation. And, you know, James Bond was our MI5 or MI6 agent. And it's like, James Bond <laughs> looks nothing like me. Well, we've been trying to get Idris Elba to go into James Bond now, but- uh, I know, that'd be great. Yeah, that'd be great, but, you know, with that that's going to happen and um, what department did you work in i work in economic crime and so economic crime are financial fraud so you got your ponzi schemes your advanced fee schemes your business of business telemarketing embezzlement things at, at the uh, of those nature so any type of conman kind of fraud is yeah. what I work primarily for most of my career. And I do want to go back and just say something about those TV shows and movies. Mm -hmm. Even though they don't represent the reality, they still do an excellent job because when people look at it and mm -hmm. they think that's the way it is, that gives them the thought that, oh, this is so, cool. Yeah. It's something that I could do. So I'm, I'm not upset. No, that they not. make it appear to be more diverse. It, I think it's a it's a great way to uh, you know it's a, it's a recruitment tool in yeah. this sense. Most yeah. definitely is. So um, working in the department that you, you worked in, um, what makes the case sort of FBI worthy instead of like a local agency dealing with it? So at what point does it go into the FBI now for you for someone like you to do with one of the cases that you do? Yeah. So there's over two hundred to three hundred different violations that the FBI works. But the biggest distinction is that it has to affect interstate commerce. It has to be something that is not just a local matter. Now, it could be just the fact that, you know, a telephone call was made from one state to another state, mm -hmm. or a banking tra transaction occurred you know, from one state to another state, um, are, are that goods that were stolen, were moved, were purchased in one place and, and were delivered in another place. But it really is uh, a set criteria of jurisdiction. Mm. And uh, it's sometimes there are cases that are FBI under the FBI's jurisdiction, but 
also could be a, a you know a local case or a state case too and it's one of those situations where the different agencies get together and either decide to work them together or figure out what would be the best for that particular case as far as whether it's going to end up in state court or federal court and who's going to get the most time and who has the uh, manpower and the resources to work that case. But usually there is a big distinction between the type of cases that the FBI is going to take and the type of cases that would be worked locally or you know, with, the, with the state. Yeah. And does the amount of money that's being um, sort of circulated um, matter as well in terms of it being an FBI case? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, again, it's a matter of even if it meets all the criteria, um, it's a matter of utilizing FBI resources as best as possible. So that may mean that, you know, if a case comes in and somebody lost $200,000, you know, it, it just is not going to be a case that 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 local FBI office is going to handle. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe something that was you know two million dollars. And a lot of times, what what we say is, if you think that you're one, I'm I'm just basically talking about the work that I did in mm-hmm. in economic crime. But if somebody were to come in and they would say they were they thought they were defrauded. And I could say to them, if you think that you, there are more victims out there, then it may be a matter of, of you gathering that information, finding who those victims are, and maybe we can, you know, bring everybody together and get that dollar amount Mm -hmm. that, you know, that exposure number, that level of fraud up to something that the FBI would be able to investigate and the US Attorney's Office, who are the prosecutors, the federal prosecutors, you know, believe would meet those guidelines too. And so it's it's not a definite that we wouldn't work a, uh, a, a victim case, but it may be one that we are trying to gather as many victims as possible in order to, to make it a case that would uh, be something that the FBI could utilize their manpower and their resources to work. Yeah. Um, I read a really wonderful quote that you stated. You said, um, "With a gun, they can steal thousands, but with a lie, they can steal millions." Yes. So, what, what that, that was, that's a really incredible quote because I mean, if you if you apply that to most things nowadays in regards to like what's happening politically in the business world, corporation-wise, we know where the biggest, you know, thefts are are, are taking place. Um, yeah. So with that quote in mind, what would you say is the biggest case you worked on? And does that does that quote apply to that case? And how did that oh, apply to it? Yeah, <laughs> it applies to all of my cases. Yeah. And I'm really proud. I, you know, I kind of at one time I had used with a gun, you can steal hundreds and with a pen, you know, you can yeah. steal millions. And then one day it just hit me. No, it's a lie. It's the yeah. lie because that's what fraud is. Fraud is. Uh, when you gain something of value by a lie or deception, you know, mm-hmm. that's what fraud is. And so it's the lie itself that allows people to, you know, steal millions. And so for me, one of the uh, biggest cases that I ever worked was a $350 million Ponzi scheme. Wow. And um, it was a charity Ponzi scheme 
where the founder of this uh, foundation, it was called the Foundation of New Era Philanthropy. He was telling people that if you want to give to nonprofits, if you want to give to charities, that if you allow me to hold on to your money for six months or more, I have anonymous donors. And don't laugh because <laughs> people <laughs> fell for this. Yeah. Uh, I have anonymous donors who will double your money. So if you want to do good, if you want to do God's work, mm-hmm. instead of just giving somebody $50,000, because a lot of these were rich you know, uh, donors, um, if you give it to me, I will have it doubled and you can give your charity $100,000. And people believed in him. Yeah, it wasn't like he just showed up one day. He had been working uh, in the community in Philadelphia for a number of years, first as a drug counselor, and then as somebody who taught nonprofits how to raise funds. And Mm -hmm. so he was this this fundraising guru who was teaching nonprofits how to get money to do their good works. And so when he brought up this you know, the scenario of, of anonymous donors, they believed him, mm. you know, he, he had already been established in the community and boy, oh boy, he just was r- raking in the money, you know, just bringing in the money again to the tune of $350 million. Wow, that's incredible. And how long is he serving now for that? He served for 12 years. He's out by now. But he served for 12 years. And uh, I actually, it was like a strange case because you always wonder, you know, within the type of cases that I worked, Mm -hmm. why did this happen? And so many times, not to make it sound like people who commit cons or frauds are any better than anybody else who commits a crime. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times these frauds occur when somebody... Uh, has a business that starts to fail. Mm. And in their desperation, because of their own narcissism or ego, they can't let it fail. Then they are so desperate that they look for resources and funding and money to help that failing business, to try to keep that failing business from collapsing. Mm. And so um, I think that's what happened with him. And it was just such a fascinating case to me because again he was a christian and he was doing this god's work and he talked about it so much that i decided to write a novel about it so one of my crime novels because i do nonfiction and, and crime fiction is about this case i i the book is called greedy givers and yeah. it's kind of you know it's inspired by this case it's not it's not a true crime but it was just my way of trying to, to, to visualize in my mind how somebody who was doing good could do so bad, you know? Yeah, that, that is incredible because I always thought about it, the, the psychology behind these type of foods. Because, I mean, now in the 21st century, we always receive these emails and text messages about, you know, there's some money left over from my dying uncle who was a king <laughs> back in Nigeria, which is the famous one. And yes. um, even though I'm well aware that these are fraudulent, every time I look at them, there's a sense of hope that, wait, 
could this one possibly be true? I'm never going to reply or send my bank details, but there's always something inside of me. I mean, is, is, is that like human greed? What is that psychology behind it that kind of pushes us to do it? And I think me being so well aware of it and being fairly streetwise, I think there must be thousands of people out there that would have sent their details or paid the initial installment of a thousand pounds to receive a hundred million, which is never going to arrive. So what is that that causes people to fall for these schemes when they clearly yeah. know there are schemes? Some, sometimes it's greed. Sometimes it's desperation. You know, with that email falls in your, you know, email account at this, at the time where, you know, you're looking for, you know, something better for yourself, something better for your family, you, you might fall for it. Maybe not that one because they're trying to get money from you, but there are others where, you know, you can get trapped into the scheme because you're looking for money too. And I guess that's why I called the book Greedy Givers because so many times people who fall for some of these frauds and front of some of these scams mm -hmm are also the, the con men's looking for money, fast money, easy money. And the victims are also looking for fast money, easy money. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a cycle, you know, how was this case? Um, so how was this case broken? How, how, how were you able to figure out that this individual was running a Ponzi scheme and how did I come to the, to your table? You know, I, I laugh every time somebody asked, you know, asked me that question because it was a strange case. We actually learned the FBI learned about this case mm. by reading a front page of the newspaper. Oh, wow. <laughs> Was so someone because, randomly in office was reading? Yeah, <laughs> because the foundation had been building, you know, supposedly this huge investment account where the money was going to sit for six months or more in mm -hmm. order for the anonymous donor to match it. And so there should have been millions of dollars sitting in an account. And of course there wasn't because the money that comes in from new investors is used to pay the initial investors. That's what a Ponzi scheme is all about. But when it got to a point where he wasn't able to bring in enough new investors to pay the old investors, he took out a, he took out a loan, uh, you know, from uh, the investment company and once they could see that, wait a minute, I don't know if he could pay this. I don't know if there's enough money. There's not enough money here for him to be able to pay this, you know, this account. So they called it, you know, they did a margin call. And because of that, it forced the company into bankruptcy. And so that was what we saw, you know, that day on the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer, mm. that this company, this foundation for new era philanthropy was filing for bankruptcy. And in it, the reporter indicated that it smelled like it may have been a Ponzi scheme. So before that, the, uh, the bankruptcy court and uh, the Security Exchange Commission, you know, were questioning, were questioning mm -hmm. the legitimacy of this foundation but they had not reached out to law enforcement yet. And so as soon as I saw that headline, you know, in the paper, I ran into my supervisor's office and I said, look at this, you know, um, I'm going to, I'm going to check this out. 
and that's how the uh, that's how the case got started from the newspaper. Oh, I see. No, nobody else bothered to <laughs> nobody call else, us. Yeah. Um, so w when you're dealing with your cases, do, do you do with it in terms of like the full process? So you do the investigation and then the arrest as well. So like like we see in the movies, for instance. Yeah. Is, yeah, is yeah, that how is yeah. that what your job entailed? Yeah, absolutely. So okay. in the FBI, every agent is assigned cases. You know, so if you are coming in as a special agent, you're going to work on a particular squad and each squad usually has a, a number of violations that they work. And so I worked on an economic crime squad. So everybody on my squad, you know, did financial frauds. Mm -hmm. You know, the, there might be a squad that has organized crime and there might be a squad that does, you know, drug enterprises, drug trafficking, another one that does violent crime, cyber crime, et cetera, like that. So you're on those squads where everybody who is working on your squad, your squad mates are all doing the same type of violation, the same type of cases, but you're given, you know, a, a load of cases. It could be anywhere from five to 25 mm -hmm. cases that you are responsible for. So it's almost like running your own business. Yeah. You know, you decide, you know, when that case is, when you're going to work that case, you decide whether or not, uh, you know, what resources you need as far as, you know, do you need to, um, do you need money to uh, buy things? Do you need uh, money to uh, get equipment that you need to use? You also decide on manpower. You know, is this something that you can work yourself or do you need other agents on your squad to help you with surveillances, arrests? But, but your job is to gather the evidence. So you have an allegation, you know, which has been predicated. You know for a fact that you've heard that this person has done something wrong and has done something in the past. And so you are gathering that information to prove that allegation. That's what you're doing. And you're doing that by interviewing people, by conducting surveillances, by looking and reviewing documents. Um, you're, 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 talking to people that were involved in the crime or witnesses or victims, and you're gathering all that information. It could take weeks. It could take years. It depends on how complicated the investigation is. But at the end, you gather all your evidence and you work with a federal prosecutor, a United States, an assistant United States attorney, and together you prepare the affidavit for arrest and search warrants and you know then it's off to court you know for yeah. trial to to finally present all your evidence to the court and yeah. see what happens so when you're looking into like the the evidence or reading up on someone's crime have you come across a criminal or a criminal organization that blew your mind in terms of how they conducted business so maybe like you know the, the way that they laundered money or the way that they defrauded people and you thought wow okay these people were really really good like were, were they you know is there one particular case or a couple that you can tell us about that blew your mind i think i think one that i found really interesting actually actually came to me from an agent who was working a drug investigation. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, do you remember, well, we just talked about Idris Albert, but yeah. uh, do, do you remember um, Stringer Bell Stringer on The Bell's Wire? Yeah. yeah. Well, it was really very much like that. It was yeah. a drug dealer who was 
trying to use his money to flip houses, to purchase homes, renovate them and sell them. And so th this was his way of kind of not only money laundering to take his illegal funds and now put them into a legitimate business and clean those funds, but also just a way of, of him trying to get out of the drug business and to, and to become a, a businessman, you know, like, like Stringer Bell. I love that show. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and um, so that's what he was doing. I got involved in the case when the agent who was working the drug angle told me about this basically mortgage and, you know, and housing fraud that he was conducting because he was getting people in the community to buy these homes by having them lie about their income and their employment and their ability to pay the loans back. Mm. And so that's a fraud. Yeah. And so he said to me, you know, I, I know the drug part. I know that I know that type of investigation, but can you help me with the fraud. And so we began working together and it was a fascinating case. And yeah. you know, just to, to see what he was doing. And a lot of people thought he was another good guy in the community, you know, buying these homes and fixing them up, but he was doing a terrible job. So yeah. not only did the people not really be able to afford those homes. So, you know, if you lie and when your mortgage is due, you can't yeah. pay it, then, you know, how helpful was that? But the houses that he had renovated, the job was just terrible. I mean, yeah. next thing you know, the toilets overflowing or the ceilings yeah. falling down or, you know, something's happening. And of course, now the people own the home, so they can't call him back. You know, they'd like to, but yeah. uh, but they also can't afford to fix it. So it uh, it was a fascinating case. I really enjoyed working that one. Oh, that's intriguing because you, you get a lot of these type of stories, especially, you know, when watching movies or reading um, up on crime where you have, you know, gangsters who are trying to reform and then they get into like the property or they get into other forms of businesses and i mean the, the classic one is um i don't know how true this is but the classic one is with the mafia and the casinos and it's, that seems to be like the one that has some sort of legacy that's kind of lasted time it, it, why were they able to um cipher through and build such a massive portfolio yeah i i it is so difficult for them to do that now just because of the mm. gaming commission and you know, who can be and can't be involved. But definitely at the beginning of the casinos and, and especially in the Las Vegas era, you know, the organized crime did it, did get in there and were able to skim so much of the money that was coming in off the top. And of course that meant not paying taxes and, mm. and, and uh, you know, not truly showing, you know, what income was flowing into these casinos. But, you know, that is just part of, the criminal element and it just shows you how financial fraud you know financial crime is tied into all these other crimes you know that you that that you work because whether it's a casino which is kind of hard to do uh, but any type of cash business such as a strip club or you know a restaurant or a bar or a laundromat or car wash any type of business where you're bringing in lots of cash, you know, definitely there could be or an organized crime enterprise would be very interested in, you know, being a part of that business yeah. and taking some of that money off yeah. the top. 
I guess businesses where you're dealing with cash directly is easier to cook the books because it's up, as, as they say, because it's up to you to write the amount that you received for a service on there because you got cash in hand. Is that why when you watch a lot of the old classic movies, they tend to open up laundry mats like dry cleaners and, yeah. you know, car washers and, and so forth yeah. or car repair shops because that was the easy way of like yeah. streaming through money. Um, but going forward A lot of now, times, I was going to say a lot of times, it's not just them trying to skim money it's for them trying to launder money mm. to to legitimize their dirty money where'd you get that money from where'd it come from you can't yeah. say well i got it from loan sharking or from you know selling drugs or you know uh you know having prostitutes you know if you could say you got it because you own a pizza place or you own a car wash that legitimizes the money so that you can spend it on things like cars and houses and vacations because otherwise you know you start spending money people want to know where the money came from yeah but but then how do you go about hiding so many millions when you know how, how many business would you need to have in order to hide like 100 or 300 million yeah, like a lot of businesses. A lot of businesses, yeah. And I'm sure people do try to, but in, in the age of sort of digital currency and we're moving into online banking and so forth, how has the game changed for fraudsters? Like when it comes to, or not fraudsters in general, but, you know, criminal organizations when it comes to laundering and hiding money, because it's, it's starting to become a bit more stringent and more difficult to do so. Yeah, it is and isn't because some of the same tools that you could use to you know, to launder money and you know, are, are really some of the same tools that you would use, you know, in, in this digital age. Mm -hmm. uh, matter of fact, I was just watching, I was listening to this podcast. Oh, I wish I could remember the name of it. Um, but it is about the Bitcoin owner uh, who gathered all this money in, I think it was a billion dollars or a couple of billion dollars and then died without leaving the passwords. Have you heard of that one? <laughs> I've heard of it, but I haven't read into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, I, I find it yeah. fascinating, but you know, it's still, it's still the same type of investment fraud that I used to work. Yeah. It's the, still the same thing, but now it's in the digital age. So mm. I think that no matter what kind of technology we have, you know, how things seem to change, the people who are committing these type of crimes, they just keep up with the technology. But at the end, it's the same greed, the same motivation that causes them to feel that they need to have access to other people's money. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, it, so the game continues no matter how the technology changes. changes yeah. you know, they'll find a way, they'll find a way. What's the most common type of um, fraud then? currently? I think probably, I think it's advanced fee. Mm. I would think it's an advanced fee fraud. And that's where uh, somebody who is looking to get a loan because they have a business, again, that they want to start or a business that isn't doing well and they need to get new capital, then they go out and they try to find somebody who will invest in their business. Well, there are a number of people uh, let's call them uh, brokers, loan brokers, who will say to somebody, hey, I have a, a portfolio of financiers, of people willing to invest uh, in, in your business. And uh, all you need to do is to pay me a percentage 
of the loan that I'm going to obtain for you. And, you know, I will be able to go to this venture capitalist and get you your money. And, you know, I will do my best efforts in order to get this loan. And of course, somebody says, okay, you know, I'm, I'm looking for a loan for, you know, 400,000 or $4 million. And, and here's a percentage, you know, of, of that loan for you to go and, and, and introduce me to this venture capitalist, you know, to this investor. And uh, you give them the money mm. and then you never see him again. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, it, it, I think the advanced fee scheme is probably one of the most prevalent because it's a situation where the bad guy is you know, has his victim right there in front of him. The victim wants something. The victim is desperate. The victim is needs his skills. So all he needs to do is be able to convince this victim that he has the ability to follow through, the ability to get them this loan. And if he can make them believe him, they will do anything. Yeah. that he asked them in order to make this happen. And, you know, if he's a good guy uh, or a good con man, then your money's gone. Yeah. Human emotion is, is, is one of those tricky ones where, you know, it's easy to manipulate people into doing stuff. Um, I was watching an interesting documentary recently about, you know, the online dating schemes where you have, um, young men from all across the world pretending to be women, for instance, and talking to older gentlemen from other various places in the world and with promises of love and sexual favors and stuff. And then they're constantly sending them money. And it's becoming more sophisticated and more sophisticated. Um, it's like technology is being used for various fraudulent activities. Do you have a separate technology unit in FBI or is it the same when working with economic fraud? Uh, I'm sorry, what, could you say that again? Um, is, there, is there a technology department that deals with like specifically online and... Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. definitely a whole cyber crime, you know, division, cyber crime unit mm. that is looking into things. But again, you know, as I talked about financial crimes, even cyber crime is something that is not really an entity or a violation in itself. For instance, if somebody is selling illegal drugs online, is that cybercrime or is that drug trafficking? You know, if somebody is online and they're, um, you know, child predator, is that cybercrime or, or is that a crime against crimes against mm. children? And so, although there is a cybercrime unit, it is not. It is acknowledged that you know that kind of crime goes into all types of violations, but definitely the FBI um, has you know, a very strong cyber crime uh, agents and resources and manpower. And that's one of the areas that they're always recruiting, you know, for, mm. you know, people coming in with those skill sets and, you know, cyber skill sets. Yeah. Um, how many years did you spend in um, the FBI? 26. 26. Yeah. How, how would you how would you sort of summarize your experience in that 26 year period? And what would you say about the FBI as an agency yeah. and organization? I would say fantastic. Yeah. There is no job like it. 
you know, mm. a job like no other as the recruiting campaign goes. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it was fascinating. You know, it's a fascinating opportunity to, you know, watch the FBI uh, change mm. because I came in uh, at an early in 1982 at a time when the FBI was known strictly as a law enforcement agency. And then, of course, after 9-11, you know, things kind of changed. Now the FBI was tasked for not only investigating crime after it occurred, but also tasked with now with being an, an, an intelligence-driven agency where they're expected to stop crime before it happens, to prevent, you know, the next 9-11 or terrorist attack. So I, you know, I watched the, the FBI as it kind of changed, you know, still doing some of the traditional work of the FBI, but definitely into a new era of intelligence driven, uh, you know, investigations. Yeah. Um, what, what's the major difference? Because from my understanding, so I wanted to know the difference between sort of like the CIA and the FBI. From my understanding, CIA is more international and FBI is more internal. What other differences are they? Yeah, in you know, a lot of people, work, yeah, a lot yeah. of people think that, but the FBI is as international as the CIA is. Okay. And so, you know, we have, oh, I hope I don't get this number right, but I wrong, but I think it's like 60, 60 plus 63 offices around the world. You okay. know, that's not the 50, you know, six offices that the FBI has in the United States, but we also have agents stationed and assigned to offices around the world. Mm -hmm. Now, the difference is, is those agencies, those agents must work with the local police and, and that country's security and police forces. Mm -hmm. The FBI can't go into another country and start investigating, you know, and, <laughs> you yeah. know, doing the things that they do on TV. They work with that foreign country. Uh, but we have represent uh, representation in most of the places around the world, not only to help agents in the United States who have are investigating a case that has an international or global uh, nexus, but also to help those countries investigate crimes that may have a, a U.S. nexus. And so it's basically us working with our law enforcement partners, you know, in the United States and overseas and many of the things. The difference between the FBI and the CIA is that the CIA is strictly an intelligence gathering entity. Okay. They don't have any law enforcement capabilities. So they are out. They're out trying to gather information that will help the United States become, you know, strong or stay strong, you know, as a, as a global entity that they're out there gathering that information, but they're not law enforcement. Now they may work with the FBI on many cases that there's, responsibilities for any type of intelligence 
cases uh, here in the U.S. and that uh, start or occur overseas. Oh, amazing. Um, so when people meet you, for instance, and you told them that you're, you've, you've worked for the FBI, what, what are some of their major misconceptions? Because I, I had a funny conversation with one of my friends when I told him that you were coming on. And then he was like, are you sure you want your camera to be on? Because they might be, you know, they might send a, a secret signal to your house that starts spying on you. I said, look, my house is just boring. I've got nothing to hide anyway. And it's like people have all these weird misconceptions about, you know, working for such agencies. I think majority of that is birthed from movies and conspiracy theories and so forth. What are some of the uh, misconceptions that you come across? Yeah, that definitely is one of the big ones. I mean, the FBI is not interested in the average citizen. I mean, mm. we don't have the manpower or the time or, you know, <laughs> to, to, to be dealing you know, with, you know, somebody who's not doing anything wrong. We are a law enforcement agency. Yes, we also intelligence um, gathering, but there's still guidelines and, uh, you know, rules and regulations for us to follow when it comes to that intelligence gathering. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not, in most cases, a covert opportunity, a covert mm-hmm. agency. Most people that knew me when I was in the bureau, knew what I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so it, uh, it, it, it just is, it's not a secret agency. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not something that you need to worry about. We're, we're like uh, very much so like any other law enforcement agency where, you know, as we like to say, you know, we're here to help. You know, mm-hmm. we're here to, uh, to make, uh, you know, the United States and our citizens safe and to gather the evidence to show, you know, people who are committing crimes, who are, you know, not obeying the rules and the laws, who are, you know, jeopardizing the, you know, the health and well-being of citizens. We're, we're here to gather that information and put them into jail. Yeah. What, so. what would you say to anyone that wants to join the agency or, or maybe had a dream about joining the agency or passion for it and just don't know how to go about doing it? What, what would you say to... I say, to... come on. Now, one thing is you do have to be an American citizen. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, you could be a naturalized citizen, et cetera, even though it's a little hard sometimes to complete the security clearance, the background investigation, if you spent a lot of time overseas. But definitely, you have to be an American citizen. But, you know, if you meet that guideline and all the other guidelines, I say, come on. It is a fantastic career. I mean, it really is. All the things that you see on TV and movies, the only exaggeration is that they happen every day or they happen every week. They happen. I mean, yeah. those arrests, those, <laughs> you know, those situations that you see agents on TV in, they happen, but they just don't happen all the time and not to the same agent over and over again. But it's yeah. an exciting and rewarding career. And it's, you know, one of the best things that ever happened to me, you know, oh, aside from my family and my children, it's, yeah. you know, fascinating. You know, or any of your kids in the, in the, agency no no I, I tried I tried my best I got grandkids <laughs> I got grandkids now so yeah. hopefully you know that I still have a chance of getting somebody <laughs> that I you know a legacy uh, yeah. uh, in, in, into the uh, into the FBI 
<laughs> so, so I was saying you've got a wonderful YouTube channel where you analyze and break down, you know, specific cases, big cases and cases that people generally didn't know about that you worked on previously. Um, so I just wanted to know if is there's any work that you got coming out that you wanted the people to know about, whether that'll be a new book and oh, yeah. any specific things that you're going to be targeting. Yeah, I, you know, I, I really enjoy my YouTube channel. It is actually, you know, my podcast, just the audio only. So it's not, it hasn't grown as big. The podcast has done really, really well. It's, you know, it's always one of the, the top uh, true crime podcast on, uh, on Apple. Um, you know, it, it, it gets someplace up there, you know, in, in, uh, in the true crime. The podcast on YouTube, you know, I hope to, it, hope to, that does a little bit better as people get to know me. Um, there's some fascinating cases on there. I just had two that were released that were about uh, the FBI profilers at the behavioral analysis unit. And those were the last two that I released. Uh, but, you know, we were talking about, since we were talking about African-Americans and, and uh, Black agents, there are two episodes that I really like for people to take a look at. And it's episode 207. And that's with my mentor, Wayne Davis, who goes through the history of the uh, African-American uh, FBI agent. And the other one is something very similar and it was, I wrote it down, uh, it was episode 186 mm -hmm. and it's with John Glover. And it was actually the episode I did when the FBI celebrated the 100th anniversary of African-American agents in the FBI. So 186 and 207 uh, are great episodes if people are interested in learning about that type of history. But there are other episodes about organizing. I, I talked to agents from uh, retired agents who have worked such a variety of cases. And so there could be cases that are and you know dealing with espionage, you know, your mm. spy cases, organized crime, your white collar crime and corruption. Uh, I've done uh, as of you know us talking, I'll be uploading my 200 and 37th, 236th wow. episode. Amazing. And uh, it's just a, a full variety of, of episodes there that I, I hope people check out. Yeah. And guess what? Ad free. Oh, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely going to check them out. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to recommend all my listeners and viewers to check them out as well. That's amazing. I, I, I completely understand what you're going through in regards to like, you know, the audio podcast to YouTube is completely two different realms. Right. Similar to my, me, like I get great stats audio. And it's only recently I'm starting to build the YouTube side of things. You realize there's a completely different ball game. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and yeah, people really get into it. But I, I love stories like yourselves and listening to, you know, true crime stories. It kind of it, it puts you into a world that you're not engaging in, but you're always intrigued to learn more about and to figure out, you know, how people work. Because I, lo I love psychology and I love culture and politics and to understand how people maneuver and how people think and what makes people do what they do is intrigues me. So listening to true stories like that, I'm, I'm always amazed by it. And listening to people who actively worked within the field, it, it's, it's even better on, the, on its own. So that's amazing. I'm definitely going to check it out and I recommend that everyone checks it out as well. But um, Jerry, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. I know you've got another show coming up shortly as well. So 
I'm not going to keep you too long, so you can have a bit of respite and prepare for that. But um, just like I say, I, um, I've, I noticed all the, um, the the badges and the plaques at the back. What are they, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, so the big round one in the very back is the yeah. official FBI seal. I mean, that is the emblem that people see, you know, when they talk about the FBI, you know, that's the, that's the, the one that's going to be on business cards that's, mm. you know, in every office, you know, you see that the, the big FBI seal, mm. the gold one is the actual FBI badge that agents carry. We actually carry what we call credentials and, you know, our credentials are it's like a leather wallet that you open up that shows you know, your picture ID and that you're a special agent, it's your official certification uh, that you show. So agents on some TV shows, you know, the police comes in and they show a badge and we show our credentials, but sometimes the, your badges can be put on the backside of your uh, credentials are mm-hmm. uh, sometimes agents wear them on, on, on their belt. Uh, but uh, also back there is uh, I have a scrapbook of all the things I collected over my career and uh, you see my books my oh, crime novels um, pay to play and greedy giver about a black female FBI agent investigating fraud and corruption about and then yourself. my two non yeah and then you have <laughs> my two non-fiction books uh, about the FBI FBI myths and misconceptions that's where I break down movies and TV shows and show you what they get right and what they get wrong and all the different cliches, about 20 cliches about the FBI that you normally see in books, TV and movies. Yeah, amazing. One, one final question before I let you go. This just popped into my head. Um, so looking from the outside in now, in terms of looking at the states, there seems to be sort of like a major breakdown between law enforcement and the, the black community in particular. Um, I just wanted to know what, what are your thoughts on it and what do you think you know, could be done to bridge that gap and what, 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 or what should be done in order to bridge that, you know, that breaking relationship there? Well, I think, uh, you know, the whole topic of this conversation at the beginning mm. of law enforcement agencies should reflect the community for which they serve. Mm. And I think a lot of the issues that are happening today is because many of them don't. And those communities feel they're not being heard. They feel they're not being served. And that is a problem that the law enforcement agency must address. You know, no matter what your thoughts are or what you think about, you know, the, the protest and what people are saying, there is a problem that needs to be addressed. You know, as a law enforcement agency who's supposed to be serving the community, helping the community, if the community doesn't trust you, then you need to fix that problem. You know, you can't expect the community to fix the problem. You have to fix the problem. And so, um, you know, one of the best ways to go about doing that is to recruit more people from the community that can help with that dialogue and help address those issues and problems and to restore uh, faith in law enforcement. Because the bottom line is, you know, law enforcement is supposed to be serving the community. And so many law enforcement agencies and so many police officers and FBI agents are doing that. But obviously there are some issues 
with those who are not. Yeah. Jerry, I appreciate that. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your knowledge and your wisdom with us. It's been, you know, it's been truly incredible. And I'm, 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 I'm pleased to have you on there and I'm truly honored as well. Hopefully we can catch up one day again in the future and have a, a further in-depth talk talk in regards oh, to some, like of the, some of your books yeah because what i'm going to do now what i tend to do is every time i speak to i prefer to speak to people before i read up on them so I, um so I, i've spoken to you now i'm going to go ahead and read all your books and i'm probably going to have like a thousand questions <laughs> so we, we'd love to catch up with you once i've you know scoured through all your books and watched all your content it's been an absolute pleasure thank you it's, it's yeah. been fun i'm so glad to have this opportunity to meet you so uh, yeah, yeah, call oh, me thank up. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> I'll no, come definitely back. will do. Yeah.